Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our strength and our redeemer. I love it when scripture seems to contradict itself. For instance, what are we to make of the fact that in the fifth chapter of Matthew, toward the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And seemingly no sooner than he's said that, he turns around in the passage that we just read and says, actually, remember what I said about not being seen by others? Uh, uh, Scratch that. Don't do righteous deeds in order to be seen by others. So which is it? Are our deeds supposed to be seen by people or not? Are we a a light set on a hill shining to all the valley around or are we to do our deeds hidden and in secret? Anytime scripture seems to be at odds with itself, it's a wonderful opportunity to explore the ways that we modern people, we in the modern church have tended to separate things that scripture has no problem holding together. For instance, depending on what your church experiences have been to date, you are either uh, typically suspicious of outward rituals or you think that's where the real action is. Now, gross oversimplification warning here, bear with me. I think it's fair and charitable charitable to say that our Catholic friends really value the outward signs of faith. While those of us who are from an evangelical Protestant background tend to value the inward experience of the heart. And each can be suspicious of the other's emphasis. I was talking with one of our members earlier this week and they said, When I first came into the Anglican church and I noticed the way that people were bowing before the cross, it really freaked me out because I was raised a Baptist and we didn't bow to anything. But where modern Christians have sundered inner faith from outward practice, Scripture sees a unity. Notice how in the teaching from the prophet Joel tonight, we're told that it's not the tearing of the outward garments that matters, but the rending of the inner heart. It's an inner spiritual repentance that matters. But, but at the same time, the prophet says, blow a horn, sound the trumpet, Call all the people together. It doesn't matter if uh, they're nursing at the breast or in the nursing home. doesn't matter. Everybody get together. There is going to be an outward liturgical response to the inward repentance in the heart. In the same way, Jesus holds the inner and the outward together all through the Sermon on the Mount. He begins in chapter 5 by noting that the way to do what God wants 
is not by gritting your teeth to comply with the law, but it is rather to be a natural response of a heart that has been set aflame by an encounter with the kingdom of God. Jesus is constantly going behind the law to investigate the intentions of the heart. He says, you've heard it said, uh, don't kill. Well, big deal. Anybody can do that. Don't you know that murderous intentions begin when anger is allowed to fester into contempt? And whether it's lust, greed, or whatever, Jesus doesn't stop once he gets to the intentions of our heart. But he goes beyond it and says, now, once your hearts have responded with joy to the arrival of the kingdom of God, that disposition will issue forth into outward action. The inner heart and the outward action are as connected, he says, as fruit that appears on a tree. If you have a healthy peach tree, it naturally issues forth into peaches. A flourishing heart naturally issues forth into compassionate action, generous giving, and prayerful attention. It just does it naturally. But then in chapter 6, what we read tonight, Jesus issues us a warning to be on guard precisely at that point where the inner disposition manifests into outward righteous activity. As soon as we do something good, especially something religious, there will be an attempt, a temptation for us to do it in order to be seen as respectable by other people. Jesus spends a lot of time here going through not just what we do, but why we do it, the intention of the heart. And note, first, that Jesus assumes that things like prayer, fasting, and generosity will be a basic, regular part of the Christian life. But at the same time, he knows that this is where pride comes in. So he says, don't toot your own horn so others will notice your goodness. Be on guard that your intention is ever to serve God and not man. But then that just sends us right back to the other pole of the paradox, doesn't it? For if discipleship is a matter of our heart's intention merely, then boy, oh boy, we are in trouble. Because who knows their heart? Let's be honest here, folks. Doesn't the prophet Jeremiah say, the heart is above all things deceitful. It will deceive you. Only God knows the heart. You don't even have to go to the Old Testament prophets to know that. Psychologists and therapists tell us that human beings have all kinds of ways of disguising from ourselves the true source of our neurotic behavior and our resentments and our fears. In so many ways, we are opaque to ourselves. Self-deception might not be the worst thing that we do, but it sure is the reason that we do the worst things that we do. 
It does us little good to listen to the message of, messages of a culture that is everywhere telling us, find out where your heart is and then follow it. Fortunately, Jesus knows better. He says, don't worry about following your heart. Follow the money, baby. <laughs> where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Find the treasure and you'll locate the heart. So Jesus is asking us tonight, how do you spend your free time? When you have extra discretionary income, what website do you go to? How do you spend it? And the truth of maturing Christian spirituality is that Sometimes it is easier to be spiritually and emotionally invested in the things that we are financially invested in. Sometimes it's easier to walk ourselves to a new way of thinking than it is to think ourselves to a new way of walking. Lent is a time to check your account balance and see where your treasure is. Let me, let me put this to you a different way. The relationship between inner faith and outward practice isn't an if-then proposition. Like, if you have faith, then it will manifest in outward activity. Or, if you perform the ritual right, then God has to reward you. Faith and practice don't move on a straight line between two poles. I think rather it's more like we could picture it like a spiral where faith manifests as practice and practice in turn builds faith. Our outward actions don't, don't only express inward faith, they form it too. Hopefully with every turn of the liturgical calendar, we're growing a little closer to God. We're spiraling toward God. Lent is a season where we try to be more aware of where we're at in that spiral, where we're at in our faith. So that during other parts of the year, we can relax into that natural life-giving joy that Jesus talks about ought to be ordinary to us. I'll tell you what Lent is not. It's not a season of self-improvement that allows you to work on your inner life so that then you'll be able to present a better you to the world. Twice this week I saw articles in the opinion page of the New York Times that were completely secular takes on Lent. For Lent, I'm giving up this thing that happens to bug me about myself. No, sir. After all, if there's one type of danger in being too aware of the approval of others, there's another whole type of danger of being too aware of your own approval. In 1 Corinthians 4, uh, chapter 5 tonight that we read, Paul says, says something that reflects exactly this same dynamic. He says, I don't allow myself to be judged by you or anyone else as though I'm in a court. 
I don't even judge myself. Only God judges me. Now, do you see how radical that is? The first part, when Paul says, I don't allow anybody else to judge me, that sounds good to us modern people. We say, oh, oh, ooh, Paul, you, you must be making progress with your therapist. Good for you. Modern people all, all, always uh, tell themselves, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my ship. Don't anybody judge me. Yes, good for you, Paul. But of course, the other pole of what Paul says is uh, especially offensive to people in traditional or conservative cultures. They would say, what do you mean, Paul, in saying that you don't allow anyone to judge you if the community and if your family and if your culture does not give you feedback about how to live your life, how will you know what role you're playing? What Paul says is radical both to traditional and modern secular societies. He says, I don't let you judge me or anyone judge me. I don't even judge myself. Only God is my judge. I think this also gets right to the heart of what Jesus meant when he said tonight, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't even be aware of your own activity. Don't judge yourself at any level. We could easily imagine someone trying to uh, put an anonymous offering in the... Uh, in the offering box back there. No one sees them. They've done it all to, them, all to them, themselves. And as soon as they slide it through the little slot, they turn around and they are so proud at how anonymous they've been. <laughs> Pride has come right back in because they are seeing themselves as judge in that moment. As soon as you attempt to evaluate your left hand's awareness of your right hand, the game's up. Now you're just aware of the other hand instead of this one. It's like that old game where you say, uh, <clears throat> try not to think about hot dogs. <laughs> what are you all thinking about right now? Slathering it with some mustard and ketchup, right? You're think you, you, you can't be so aware of what you're thinking of that you trick yourself into some endless game, some perpetuating self-judgment. The idea here is rather to be so immersed in what you're doing that you're almost unaware of your own actions. And that's really hard to do when you're anxious about what other people will think of you or even when you're constantly evaluating your own performance. Jesus says, you can live the kind of life that I offer to you in such a natural and unselfconscious way that it just, it just happens. Earlier tonight, I heard Darlene uh, say to somebody else she hadn't played the piano in a while, and I heard her say, my hands know what they're doing, and it's almost as if my mind takes a second to catch up. Or how about you sports people? What, what does the announcer say when a guard hits... Three-pointer after three-pointer. They say, he's out of his mind, baby. He's unconscious. He's not aware of what he's doing. He's not going, now I take the ball and, and put it up like this. He's unaware. Or how about when 
we think about an actor who takes their role so naturally and fully that they seem to have become the part that they play. I think this is what Jesus wants for us when he warns us against the dangers of hypocrisy. A hypocrite, after all, is someone who is not acting naturally at all. They do one thing, but they really feel another. It's as though they're wearing a mask that makes them look better than what they actually are. Now, there's something to this because until the time of Jesus, that word hypocrite actually referred to the kind of stage actor who would wear a mask. You've seen these old masks, right? Uh, uh, The mask of tragedy or comedy or, or of some specific role, and they would put that on. It's not who they were. They're just playing a role. Jesus puts this firmly in the moral sphere and said that we do that with ourselves and with each other and with God. But here's the thing. Why would Jesus warn us against the dangers of hypocrisy if he didn't think that we could be anything else? He knows us, right? Christ knows the truth about us that even at our very best, on our best day, even when we're struggling mightily to become the role that we play, there's always going to be a degree of disconnect. I mean, you've seen, this, uh, you've seen this silly thing with modern method actors like Jim Carrey who, who, who plays a role in a movie and he wants everybody to call him. Instead of Jim Carrey, he wants to be called Andy Kaufman. And so he goes around for weeks at a time pretending to be the role that he plays. I don't care how long you do that. At some point, you got to take the mask off and go back home. And for some of us, that's incredibly painful. We gesture toward compassion, but it comes across as wooden. We want so much to be the person that God has called us to be, but sometimes our bodies betray us. We want to say the line that the author and perfecter of our faith has set down for us, but the tongue cannot live up to the heart. To see that slippage in ourselves is to begin to enter into the good news. When we see that disconnect in a season of penitence like Lent, we have to reach out and ask for help saying those lines. And that's the good news. The Spirit always helps us precisely in our weakness. The Holy Spirit is like the stage manager in the drama of redemption. He prompts us with our lines from backstage when we don't know what to say. And what's more, none of us are alone in this drama. The Holy Spirit has birthed a community. You might say it's an acting troupe that we call the church. We learn to act and respond to others in compassion and sensitivity. That's how we know how to act. But better still, everything we do in this play is a free and joyful response to our brother Jesus.
He alone is the perfect integration of his role and his person. His performance of the will of God is so spectacular that he makes everybody in the scene with him look like a better actor than they really are. And he doesn't just lead by example. No, he takes on our role so that we can take on his. What do we hear from 2 Corinthians tonight? He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He became like we are so that we can become like he is. And when he is glorified in us, it brings glory to the Father, the author of salvation, the producer of all that is, the one in whose sovereign freedom all of our action can unfold. Friends, you have a part to play. And don't be anxious that you're going to mess up, okay? Uh, the church tells you tonight that you don't even have to be anxious about your own death. You don't have to be anxious about your entrance and exit. From dust you've come, and to dust you'll return, and the play will go on, and that's wonderful news. You don't have to be anxious that you'll do something wrong because the only critic out there is the Holy Spirit who judges our actions not on their own merit, but judges us according to the Father's love for Jesus. Take your time. Take it easy. You're with the star of the show. It's his name that is up in lights. It's his glory that we're here to perform. So during this season of Lent, whether you eat or drink, whether you fast and pray, whether you cross yourself or lift up holy hands, whatever it is you do, do all to the glory of God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.